Matthew chapter 20, and starting at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. To sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our passage begins with another death prediction from Jesus, for at least the fourth time in Matthew Jesus drops into conversation that he's going to die. Why? Why was Jesus so obsessed with his own death? What's his fixation? And and why does Jesus bring it up here, en route to a festival that we'll get to in chapter 21? I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to have been there? You're with Jesus and his special band of merry men, And you're on the Jerusalem road. You're walking with the many pilgrims to the capital city for the great festival. The path is long and windy. The train is hilly and covered with sand. There's thousands walking the path in front and behind you. The excitement would be crescendoing as you wandered mile after mile. But Jesus, he pulls his disciples to the side of the road, verse 17, And this moment would have been so poignant. Jesus wants to say something. Time would have almost felt like it stood still, as if the crowds of people wandering to Jerusalem behind them just vanished as they listened to Jesus' simple but devastating words. We're going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen there? The Son of Man, that's Jesus' most elevated title for himself, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. 
I mean, what would you be thinking as a, as a disciple hearing that? I mean, Jesus is saying, my journey to Jerusalem is a one-way ticket. This is the end of it all. And of course, like we said, this isn't brand new information to the disciples. Jesus has already spoken like this before. The references are there on your handout. Check out later. But why was Jesus getting so fixated on, his, on predicting his death again? Again and again and again, he does that. The disciples were confused before. Surely they'll be confused again. Uh, this prediction as well is much more gruesome than the previous takes. Here, the Gentiles are involved, and the crucifixion is spelled out. See, only the Romans were allowed to crucify people. Uh, Jesus will be condemned, meaning there will be legal proceedings leading to the death. Uh, mocked and flogged, meaning there will be humiliation before the death. And that final sentence, raised their life, so difficult for them to grasp at this stage that they almost miss it. It's so clinical. It's so precise. How would Jesus possibly know all of this in such detail too? And crucially, why is he telling us again of his death? The answer lies in what follows, which we'll conclude with as we end. But given such a poignant moment for the disciples, and considering what Jesus actually said, the following sentences... They are the epitome of a tone-deaf response, aren't they? We're going to see the the problem of our passage now. Uh, The problem is simply this. Worldly disciples. Worldly disciples. Uh, Mrs. Zebedee, uh, that is the mummy of the disciples, James and John. Uh, Mrs. Zed and her two boys, uh, they all come up and they kneel down. And that word for kneeling is actually the word for worship. This is a highly respectful moment. They are worshipping Jesus for who he is. Even the Son of Man, as Jesus spoke of himself so regularly from Daniel 7, with all the authority of God himself, ready to judge the whole world. And she asks Jesus to do her a favour. Very simple. Just one thing, Jesus. Just one little thing. Seems innocuous enough, doesn't it? Jesus is straightforward in his reply. What do you want What do you want? It's certainly not a blank check to make any request they'd like, though I wonder what we might say given that same question. What do you want? What do you want? Do we want something in this life or something in the next? Do we want something for ourselves or something for someone else? Given who Jesus is as well, surely he could give us anything. Anything at all, if we persuaded him to. What do you think we'd ask Jesus for, given the same question? What do you want? What would you, what would be your one wish, your heart's deepest desire above all things? I think naturally we always want the wrong things, don't we? Naturally. In my worst moments, I want things that are just for myself, or even possibly that harm myself. But just imagine, imagine what Jesus would say given the same question. What would Jesus say? Jesus, what do you want? I think he'd say, I want as many people to be saved for life with me as possible. That certainly seems to be his deepest desire by the end of today. And that, that should be our deep desire too. Wanting as many people 
to be saved for life with Jesus as possible. Now comes the tone deaf moment. Second half of verse 21, Mrs. Zed, she plucks up the courage to request a big favor. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. That's what every mother wants for her sons, isn't it? Mrs. Zed was no different to any mum. She wants success for them. And to her credit, she's been listening. She's been listening. We have a kingdom in the future where there will be judgment given by all believers on glorious thrones. If you don't believe me, look at the end of chapter 19. See, it is far too easy to make out that Mrs. Zed and her two boys, they are just simply wrong at this point. That would be a mistake on our part. We mustn't hold them up as pure baddies. They have been listening. They grasp that there will be a kingdom. They know there will be a judgment. And they want to be involved in this heaven that Jesus speaks of. They approach Jesus as the son of man, the judge of all. They kneel at his feet in reverence and fear. They know Jesus is the king of a glorious kingdom. The Zebedee family are not all bad. But why is it important not to paint the Zebedee family, the Zebedees as all bad? It will stop us from thinking, um, we would never be that foolish. Uh, we would never make that kind of mistake. I think it's all too easy for us to fall into the family traits of being a Zebedee, actually. Worldliness in that sense, which creeps into us all, all the time. I mean, just think for a moment, what have they actually gotten wrong exactly? They have just one thing wrong. One thing. They don't understand heaven. They don't grasp what type of kingdom it is. It's what chapter 20 is doing for us. It's reshaping our understanding of heaven from something which is basically the world, but a bit better, to something altogether radically different. Heaven will be a new creation which will be perfect, totally different to what we have now. So how has Mrs. Ed and her sons got this so wrong? Why are they tone deaf? Why are they blind? Why are they ignorant? Jesus sums it up perfectly in verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. They asked for the ultimate promotion, which is so ugly. They wanted to be someone. They wanted to grab recognition, to be the top dog. Now, let's be very clear now. Power can be more addictive than alcohol and more damaging than any banned substance. But power itself, that is not the ugly thing. Think of the Lord Jesus, who has ultimate power for a moment. Certainly not bad in his hands, is it? See, it's the hands that wield the power that is so dangerous, not power itself. If power is handled by a good and kind king, then it's pretty glorious, actually. So what is actually wrong with what they're asking for? What are the disciples inviting their way? And listen to this carefully. I think this is surprising to us. They ask for worldly wealth and honour. That is really to ask for anxiety, temptation, disappointment and envy. That's certainly what wealth and honour in our society tends to bring, doesn't it? Whereas, to ask for spiritual greatness and reward 
is really to ask for great suffering. Great suffering. And that is Jesus' point. Do you see verse 22? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Uh, the cup in the Old Testament is a picture of the wrath of God. A cup which Israel need to be taken away from them. They desperately need that to be taken off them. And it's a cup of the complete wrath of God, which must be drunk to the dregs, which will cause the drinker to stagger at consuming, which every sinner deserves to drink, and which God will demand everyone does drink. I mean, volunteering for that cup, it's ludicrous, isn't it? Yeah, the last three words of verse 22 show their ignorance. We are able. So naive. So naive. And Jesus answers firstly on the disciples' own terms before then blowing their thinking right out of the water. He starts, at verse 23, read it with me. You will indeed drink my cup. The Christian life is indeed a life of suffering, one of service, one of laying down your life for others. I hope we know that. It is not one of grabbing for status or power like they have just done. See, sometimes it means literally losing your life for Jesus. And of course, we know exactly what ends up happening to James and John. Their specific cup, which Jesus makes plain here, it was certainly drunk by the pair of them. But James and John had it really rough, didn't they? In Acts 12, James is martyred, seemingly to the delight of the Jews. And in Revelation 1, John is exiled in prison until he dies. Mrs. Z's sons had special cups waiting for them to be drunk. Yet it is not uncommon in the world today that Christians lose their lives just for being Christian. That is, and has always been, relatively normal. I hope we know that. But for most Christians, like us, being Christian means laying down our lives in service of others, putting others first, if necessary, doing whatever it takes to serve others, no matter the cost. That is heavenly discipleship. Do you see the contrast of that with the Zebedee family? Jesus then lets them um, down gently, um, and by rejecting the power grab request, end of verse 23, it's not my job, not mine to grant, it's God the Father's job. And in a flash, the conversation, it goes from Jesus with Mrs. Z and the two boys to including the other disciples as well, verse 24. And did you spot their reaction? Did you spot it? They are indignant. Wouldn't you be too? Why are they indignant, angry, and vexed? Jealousy. Fear of missing out. Jesus, you're not really going to grant them what they ask for, are you? Really? I mean, can you see what this worldly discipleship leads to? How it affects everyone around you? Inevitable disunity, division, and dysfunction. It produces such ugliness. And Jesus sums up our world so perfectly. I love that about the Lord Jesus. He's so 
good at calling a spade a spade. He nails what the world is like so deftly. Verse 25. He starts talking about how the world deals with power. And he's doing that to highlight the similarities with the disciples. He's saying, you are worldly disciples. That's what he's saying. Um, look, look at it with me. You know, as well as I do, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That word lord it, it means to become master or to gain dominion over another. Jesus is saying the world is always the same, always has been, always will be. They are lorded over each other, mastering each other. Ben showed us this so clearly, didn't he? It's the world through and through, isn't it? Craving status, craving power and control. And then crucially, once they get it, holding on to it like mad. You don't need me to tell you. It's in every single walk of life. Politics. Your workplace, I suppose, I guess, schools, any and every institution, I think. Even, I'm ashamed to say, the church as well. Jostling for power and position. Why is it so ugly? Why is it so ugly? It's all the stuff that messes up our world, isn't it? Walking all over others. It brings the worst out of people when they're feathering their nests and promotion at all costs, advancing self without seeing others. It's the stuff that makes people turn away from Jesus. And in that sense, it's sin. Putting self before others. The world says we must have whatever will send us to the top of the organization. The world says we must have whatever will make us great. The world says we must have whatever will make us first. So that's the problem. Worldly disciples. What's Jesus' solution? How does Jesus address this worldliness from his disciples? How does he change their ugly attitude? Now we need to hear this sentence very, very carefully indeed. Everything that the world stands for, Jesus hates He hates it. Not so among you. Jesus is saying, stop it. Don't be like the world. He hates that. This attitude has got nothing to do with heaven and his kingdom. So Jesus' solution is to have us look at him. Jesus wants us to fix our eyes on him and to focus on heaven. Jesus is the king of the heavenly kingdom, which runs totally different to our world. Jesus is extending what we learned about last week, where the kingdom of um, heaven, chapter 20, verse 16, is governed by the first being last and the last being first. That heavenly kingdom, it's centered around heavenly service. Heavenly service. Verse 26, look at it. If you want to be great, become a servant. Verse 27, if you want to be first, be a slave. That's very challenging, isn't it? You and I won't think like this naturally. It's so counterintuitive. We'll need to catch ourselves all the time, correcting ourselves on this. It's not natural. And of course, 
say very hard work. Because our default is to think of self, isn't it? We'll always kick back so quickly against this. We've been told ever since we were babes, look after number one, have a bit of me time. Don't worry about others. Look after yourself. This helps us grasp exactly what the Zebedee family got so very wrong. And as it turns out, all the indignant disciples, see, they pushed, even pressurized, for the prominent position. You can even imagine the, the calculations from the Zebedee family plotting to do it quietly, um, out of earshot, um, round the back, knowing deep down that what they are doing is sneaky. Why else did they approach Jesus privately? Remember, though, let us not hold them out as fools. In so many ways, they had it right, didn't they? They had it right. They think Jesus is the king. They think his kingdom will surely come. They think Jesus is the one in the main seat. They think it's worth worshipping this Jesus as such. But they're in it for themselves. In it for themselves. Verse 26, they want greatness. Verse 27, they want to be first. The last couple of weeks, I think, we've had our view of heaven corrected somewhat, haven't we? So often we, we, we think of heaven like it's full of clouds and floating and harps. And Jesus wants us to realize that it's so much more beautiful than that. It's ruled by the servant king. And its whole order and system is one of service of other people. Heaven is a place of service. Maybe that surprises us. But wouldn't that be so wonderful to be in a place like that? If we all served each other? I mean, just think of it for a moment. How do, I think, how do you think of heaven? Do we think of heaven as somewhere where we are at the center of it all? Do we think of heaven as maybe just having God and me there? And other people are just simply irrelevant? Do we have a worldly view of heaven? Think, what, what's going to govern heaven? Oh, it'll be this principle. First will be last, and the last will be first. It'll be unlike anything this world could even imagine, which is why we need Jesus to teach us about heaven. If we don't understand what heaven will be like, our discipleship now will always be worldly. We need to grasp that heaven is a place of service and we'll begin, begin to behave like heavenly beings now. And it's an undeniably beautiful thing when this kind of service happens, isn't it? It's breathtaking. Heaven won't have anyone stabbing you in the back. There'll be no jostling, no infighting, no lording it over each other, no mastery. It'll be beautiful, filled with joy and peace. I think we should daydream about all the implications of heaven without this specific sin in it. I mean, just imagine it. Wouldn't that just do us so much good if we could realize what heaven would be like without sin in it? Trouble is, we, we struggle to daydream about a place like that because, well, let's be honest, it's impossible to imagine, isn't it? It's almost too good to be true. What would it be like to not have sin taint everything? Think about it for just a moment because 
if heaven wasn't like this, then I don't think it would be heaven. Heaven's ruled by the ultimate servant, the servant king. Heaven's full of pure power, which is put in the best of hands. And the hands, those hands are the hands of the servant king. And his followers, they will be beautifully imitating their king. They'll be servants too. And the crazy thing is, we can start doing that even now as we follow the king's pattern in this life. Jesus saves the best line until last. Just look at verse 28 carefully with me. What a stunning verse this is. It answers why Jesus had to die, where, which is where we started, right? We're going to Jerusalem so that Jesus can die for sinners, sinners like these disciples and Mrs. Z's boys. And it also shows us the pattern of the kingdom exemplified in its servant king. Jesus, who is the son of man, that title from Daniel 7, which speaks of ultimate power and authority over everything in the universe. And yet this son of man comes surprisingly not to serve, to be served, but to serve, to lay down all that power. Why does he do that? Here's the number of the issue. Look at the end of the verse with me. Jesus came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom, it means to buy somebody back. You hear it in films all the time, right? You hear, never negotiate with the kidnappers. But the truth is, in reality, ransoms nearly always get paid. Because people really matter, don't they? We know that. People really matter. I wonder, do you, do you know the highest ransom price paid to date for somebody? Do you know the, the price? At Google, it says it was um, King Richard the Lionheart, ransom for 150,000 marks in the year 1,190, which is equivalent to roughly 2.7 billion pounds today. That was three times the annual revenue of the whole of England at the time. But Google is wrong. Google's wrong. The highest ransom price paid to date was for you. For you. As Jesus paid for you with his own life. That is how Jesus served us. That is the price that was paid. He paid for you with his life. Jesus came to redeem a people for himself. He, he did that by thinking of himself last and putting you first. He did that by thinking of putting aside greatness to serve us. Notice, being last and servant of all, it starts in our thinking. Our thoughts about self and about others. It's quite possible that we think too much about ourselves and not enough about Jesus' serving and others who we could be serving. I mean, Jesus himself, King of King, Lord of Lords, the Son of Man, the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth, who had all power, authority, and dominion in every age, that Jesus stepped down and gave himself to redeem you. You. He became a slave to redeem you and me for heaven. So heaven's a place where the king is a servant. 
glorified through serving us. And if that is what the king is like, just imagine what his subjects will be like. When Jesus sees us being like the world, he says, no, not so amongst you. Heaven won't be anything like what we know on earth. And if we're to be people of heaven, we must strip ourselves of the attitudes that we spoke of earlier. Stop thinking that you're a somebody. You're a nobody that Jesus has mercifully saved. If heaven will be a place of serving each other, don't you think we should characterize life as a Christian now in the same way? As we close, let me just ask you this. Why do you think there is a limit to our serving of each other here? I think it's always an attitude problem, isn't it? Thinking that somebody else should do it, not me, for whatever reason. And that is self-elevation. It's ugly. It's worldly. It's self-promotion. So service like this, we need to remember if it's good enough for Jesus to humble himself to serve, then surely we should be willing also to follow in the king's most heavenly, most beautiful footsteps. Let's pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of Man, exalted on high. Glory be to his name alone. Yet for our sake, he became nothing. For our sake, he gave his life to ransom us. Wow. Thank you. What a king. What a kingdom he is forming. Thank you that heaven, it's made up of servants. Help us never be worldly in our discipleship. Help us, when we have that attitude here, to challenge each other and say to each other, not so amongst us. Heaven as a perfect place of service is so beautiful to imagine, but we find it so hard for others to fix our eyes on it. So help us wonder at heaven's perfection and thrill us with your kingdom, we pray, for your great glory alone. Amen.